This morning we're continuing to um, track through the uh, story of Abraham and um, whether we finish this uh, series by the end of this year or early into next year, we're not quite sure. There's still quite a lot of ground to cover. In fact, some of the core elements of uh, Abraham's story we still haven't, uh, we still haven't covered, but uh, this morning uh, we really are privileged to have Rod with us this morning and uh, he's covering a really uh, challenging uh, element of uh, Abraham's story and uh, he drew the short straw uh, as we were preparing this uh, series. Uh, it was decided, voted uh, that, that Rod would take this one on. Um, as a community, we're, we're, we are into interaction and uh, conversation and so um, I'm sure as Rod is sharing uh, your some questions will begin to emerge, and there is there will be space uh, during Rod's um, message this morning for us to maybe ask some questions or to um, add our thoughts into this um, into this discussion. So, thanks, Rod. Great to have you. Thanks, Steve. Um, so, as you can see, we're looking at the the sacrifice of Isaac today, or as um, as Rabbi Morgan told us, the Akeda. I think it's also the Yitzhak Akeda, um, and they call it the Binding of Isaac, which is actually a better name for it, so apologies. Uh, I thought to begin with we'd hear the story, and uh, since it's a story of a, a father sacrificing his son, I thought a heavily pregnant woman would be the perfect person to read the passage. So Susie's going to read it for us. Sorry, it's, if, if you've got this one, page 19, it's Genesis 22. I'm also a bit sick, so bear with me if I sound a bit hoarse, or if my waters break. Um, okay. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but... Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. 
he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother. Oh. I want you to imagine that you're hearing that story for the first time, um, or that you're hearing that story as someone that has no allegiance to the God of the Bible at all, um, that you're someone that's perhaps even reading it as someone that has no uh, feeling for the God of the Bible at all, is perhaps considers the God of the Bible to be irrelevant or to, has no connection with the God of the Bible. What, what kind of reaction? Uh, there may be people that you know who know this story and have um, very strong negative reactions to it, um, or confusion about it, what, as you read it, as you heard it, what stories, what, sorry, what questions came to mind? What things, what provocative things in this story really stood out for you? Or what kinds of questions have you heard others pose in relation to this story? Yeah. Yeah, how, how could Isaac allow himself to be bound? Um, there's an interesting question here of uh, what age did you picture Isaac when you were hearing this story? What age? Twelve? Eight or nine? There was a, there was a five, we have a five. <laughs> yeah, five. It's really interesting how that affects your perception of the story, the age. If you, if you see like a five-year-old or an eight-year-old, um, it's a much, much more, it's, I mean, it's a confronting story anyway, but it's a much, much more confronting story. So that's an interesting question. Um, I think in that painting, um, a little bit older, but yeah. A- any other? Yeah. Why didn't he argue at all? And why did he just go, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, there was, if, if you were here last week, Rabbi Morgan talked about the fact that um, for him, uh, Isaac is the shadow, just a shell, well, not a shell of a man, but he's the shadow of his father. Um, he doesn't really do much at all in the Bible. And his feeling is that perhaps that is it's kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, it's a re- response to this experience. So, yeah, that's a thought. Other, other ideas? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, cert- certainly God gives no reason initially that for for this, yeah. 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 Yeah, how how close did Abraham get? Yeah. Mm. There's um I heard a comedian talking about this story a, a while ago and he he describes God as a like a crappy girlfriend. Um <laughs> the kind of the kind of girlfriend that asks you to do something to prove that you love her and then when you try to do it says, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Yeah? And it's just the kind of <laughs> ripping your mind apart with kind of crazy, fickle mind games. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it feels a bit like that, or it can, yeah. Now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's the thing. Yeah, it's one of the things for me. The absence of Sarah in this story is quite provocative. To think, you know, I'm just going to take my son and kill him, and I'm not even going to tell my wife. Or was she informed? I mean. Well, from the story, we don't know. That's the thing. We'll, we'll look at those kinds of things later. But what, what I w- want to do is just, I guess, just, just focus on, imagine that we know no context of this story. We're just, this is all we have, this story. What, what do we make of it? Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but how do you know that from the story? You don't know that from the story. You, you, we might, again, uh, what I want to do is get to context, but I don't want to jump straight away. I understand why you want to bring in other things, but I think it's really, I think it's important for us with, when we read a passage of the Bible to not try too quickly to interpret it 
from other things that we know, to bring in all the things that we know. Of course we're going to do that. But as, as Rabbi Morgan said last week, I think it's very important to ask like the, the questions that a child would have of this story first, to actually experience the story first as it is um, before we start to um, bring in other things from around it, from the culture to, to explain it. Because I think if we are to talk to other people about this story, we, we, in a sense we need the empathy of knowing how it must be for them to experience it when they hear it for the first time. So that's, that's what I want to do first, and then, but I, I think we, need, we definitely need to get to that, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, so maybe he feels a bit kind of, yeah, he doesn't trust his own judgment or intuition anymore, yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah, it does. It's it's easy to see him like a toddler with a a newborn going. He's, he's this new child in your life, and um, yeah, prove that you love me more than this. You know, yeah. Yeah, that's. A, I think that's a good. We might leave it there, but it's a nice summary. Not a nice God. Yeah, uh, I've got. Can, can you go to the next slide? I was reading a book recently by a writer called Michael Chabon, who's um, one of my favourite novelists. It's, it's called Manhood for Amateurs. Uh, I'd highly recommend it if you're a man or a woman. Um, <clears throat> but in this, in this book, I came across this quote, and I think it, it really encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of what people... Who, who don't have faith, people who don't have this allegiance to the Bible, what they make of this story. Um, I really can't stand the God of Abraham. In fact, I consider him to constitute the pattern to which every true bully I have ever known in my life has pretty well conformed, in his arbitrary and capricious cruelty and in the evident pleasure he derives thereof. And then there's God at his computer with the smite button. And yet, could we go to the next slide, Alex? A, a few weeks ago, um, we had a wonderful talk on, on the God of love. You know, we had this a talk that focused, I guess, focused on the story of, of the loving father and the, the prodigal son and the, the good son, telling us that the, the message, the core message of the Bible is that we have this big, loving God who wishes to pour out blessing on us. Um, a God that wants to shower us with love. And this is, this is quite clearly the vision of God that comes through the teaching and the life of Jesus. 
we see a God who wants to be reconciled with us, a God who wants to pour blessing on us. And that is certainly the heart, at the heart of my faith, a relationship with this God that I meet through Jesus. Um, so it, it just creates that question of what do we do with passages like this one? What do we do with it? A passage which, at least on the surface of it, seems to completely contradict what we understand God to be through Christ, where we seem to be encountering a, complete, a completely different God. I think it's a little bit um, like what happens with friendship. Yeah. Um, can you go to the next one? When we, um, when we learn something about a friend, so we have a very good friend, someone that's very dear to us, and we have a very clear sense of who they are, and then something happens, we hear a story about them, or we see them do something which seems completely at odds with the image that we already have of them. And somehow, we have to take the sense that we have of them and take this contradictory element, this challenging, provocative, different, negative thing that we see about them, and we have to try somehow to reconcile them. Um, But I want to just talk for a second. This is a chance for you to tell me what do you think people do do in response to this kind of situation. When you hear a story about your friend which is at odds with what you understand them to be, um, what, what do we do with that information? What are the different ways that we can respond to this thing which doesn't seem to fit with what we understand our friend to be? Yeah. So one thing is to just give up on them, yeah, Treat them differently. Um, so I guess, yeah, go, okay, I need some greater distance from you. Yeah. Yep, so basically go, this, this is wrong. It's just not true. And so just kind of bracket it off. It's, it, I don't even need to think about it because it's, it's clearly not true. Well, sorry, we have, yeah, got people in the corner. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's just a little, a little kind of statistical anomaly. Um, but basically we can, kind of, <laughs> we can kind of ignore that one because this, all this other stuff seems to add up, so we don't need to really worry about it. Yeah, Ruth? Yeah, so you might think, may, maybe I don't know this person at all. It's, it's like the opposite of what Kaz is saying. Maybe the 1% is actually the truth and the 99% is all kind of... Um, PR. There's a thought. <laughs> we can actually talk to them. <laughs> yeah, we could talk to them and try to get um, some context from them which might make sense of this difference. Yeah. Any other ideas? Oh, yeah, Nicole. Yeah, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, so, so perhaps realise that we have, we have boxed them or defined them way too tightly um, and that uh, maybe there is, at, at some kind of bigger scale, these things can be reconciled. Um, the problem, yeah, maybe the problem is with us, that we have um, a too, too small an understanding of who this person is and that this, rather than this being something that isn't true or whatever, it is actually an opportunity for us to grow in our understanding, to accept that they're perhaps bigger than we, we ever realised. Mm. Mm. Yeah, people, literary, in literary criticism, they talk about the idea of stories reading us rather than us reading stories. And, and sometimes when we find out something provocative or we hear a story about someone and we have an incredibly strong negative reaction to them, we go, you are, oh, no, this person is this. It's actually the story reading us. It's actually saying something negative about our inability to, um, to meet this person as they are. Yeah, yeah. So there's that kind of historical thing of going, yeah, that that must be from before, but they're different now. Um, so yeah, we could um, sever them from a, some past thing that they were, and you know, people in the history of the church have done this. They've cut the Old Testament, the New Testament. They've said they're different gods. Yeah, they're just different gods, or or God in different stages of development. And yeah. Um, So maybe you yeah, keep trusting your in- intuition about them. Don't let this... Yeah, they aren't a different person just because you've learned this thing about them. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I might leave it there because I don't want you to do my entire talk for me before I get to it. But um, <laughs> uh, if you go to the next one, Alex, and just, just bring all of them up because we've essentially done... There's four of them. Yeah. Um, I came up with four basic categories. I think we've touched on all of these and added quite a bit of nuance that I was not capable of to these, um, these four things. But, uh, yeah, I feel like the, these are four helpful categories to think about how we might respond to this new information about a friend, how we might respond to stories about God that are really provocative. So one is, as we said, to kind of ignore it, deny it, just to go, that can't be true, um, which is difficult when it's in the Bible, but there you go. Um, we can question everything we knew about this person, so that's the kind of... Um, the 99% going, okay, that, everything I know up to now is obviously false and this is the only true thing that I know about this person. We can talk to them. Um, or, and this is something that we're, we're kind of touching on over here. We can kind of live, live with the tension, realising that perhaps this is the beginning of a process of us 
expanding our sense of who this person is, um, but that for the moment we have to live with the fact that that hasn't happened yet and all we feel is a tension of these things don't seem to fit. Um, so let's talk, I want to talk briefly about all of these. Um, if you want to go to the next slide, Alex. Um, I think, um, I mean, you might have your own ideas about this, but I think one of the problems with just completely ignoring stories that are difficult for us, <laughs> ignoring stories that are difficult for us, is that um, like any kind of denial, it doesn't really go away. It's just like, in a sense, it's a time bomb waiting to explode. And a lot of people um, in their faith, as kind of in their young faith, they, they have a faith like this, which is kind of protected from all the difficult stuff. And then they, they get to university or they have um, an encounter with a, a friend who has a very kind of anti, a very well thought out anti-faith perspective. And suddenly these things that they've sought to keep down come to the surface and their faith just explodes. Um, uh, but I think the other thing about refusing to, to even engage with difficult parts of the Bible is that it, it, it prevents us from maturing, it prevents us from growing in our faith and in our understanding of God. Um, childhood is a necessary stage of life and it's, I think it's a necessary stage of faith as well. Um, when you are a child, you need your parents to be, in a sense, um, without faults, um, just strong. You need them to be a rock. Um, and you need, in a way, to ignore any weaknesses or any frailties that contradict that because it's, it's a necessary part of, of you having the stability of attachment that allows you to grow. But there comes a point when that way of relating to your parents and that way of relating to God becomes counterproductive um, where you need to move beyond it um, and I think that's part of when as a as a child you start to come to terms with the fact that your parents aren't perfect that they have these faults they have these frailties they have these faults and in faith the same process is engaging with these difficult stories and trying to see what they will do to your faith um, does that make sense? Does that, does that kind of resonate, that idea? Any, any comments about Peter Pan Christianity? It's a nice picture, isn't it? I love Google images, the kind of crazy things that come out. Is that kind of what you're wearing as Pinocchio or is it slightly different? Yeah. <laughs> Not with the knife, no. But <laughs> it's interesting, the presence of the knife. But yeah, anyway. Brings us back to Abraham. Um, Rabbi Morgan last week said that the best students at a Jewish theological college are not the ones with the best answers, but the ones with the best questions. Um, and I think that inevitably in our faith, we need to, to start to question things that perhaps we didn't question before. Um, do you want to go to the next one? Um, I guess this is adolescence, isn't it? When you move from childhood, where you move from that kind of simple 
trust to a greater level of complexity, to a greater level of, of questioning. Um, you think, think back to when you were 14 or 15 and uh, your mother had carried you in her body for nine months, then given birth to you in agony, had countless sleepless nights in the first few years of your life, had bathed you, fed you, clothed you, look up, looked after you when you were sick, comforted you when you were sad, listened to your countless inane stories, kept all your terrible artworks in a box in the attic, spent every minute that you were out of her sight managing an undercurrent of terror about the evils that might be befalling you. And after all of this, she says to you at 15, sorry, darling, but you can't sleep at Madison's house when her parents are away in Noosa. And she instantly becomes the most unjust, despicable person that has ever walked the face of the earth. Do you remember that? <laughs> Living it, yeah. It's yet to come for me. Um, but in a way, this is a necessary phase as well, adolescence. It, it, for kids to, to separate from their parents, they need to have this blindness to all their parents have done for them. Otherwise, they can't kind of gather together the necessary resentment <laughs> to, to individuate, to push away. And th- there's a sense in which in our faith the same thing needs to happen. There's a, there's a phase we need to go through. And I don't think this is just linear. I think this is, in a sense, it's cyclical. That I think there are phases of childhood, phases of adolescence, phases of maturity. The, the trend is up. It's like a little upward corkscrew, if I may, um, where you're going through these phases, but, but moving towards maturity. And I think there are phases of questioning that we, we continue to go through. But we, we kind of need to be a bit blinkered for it to be able to really get, get angry with God. We need to f- somehow forget some of the things that God has done for us in the past and go, right now I'm really angry with you for this reason. When I was a... Um, I grew up in a, f- a family with very strong women and I grew up in a church that had a very conservative attitude to women. No women in leadership, no women preaching. Um, and this, as an adolescent, this became incredibly problematic and painful for me. Um, And every time I read the passages that my church used to justify this position on women's ministry, I got incredibly angry with the church and incredibly angry with God. Uh, And it got to the point where it's almost like these were the only passages that I would read. These are the only passages that I could think about. It became like an obsession. Everything else was bracketed out. It's like we, we talked about that the 1%, you forget the 99% that's positive and you just focus on the 1% that's negative. But it was something that I needed to do at the time. I needed to, to wrestle with this stuff, to find something that I could live with so that then I could bring back the 99% into my faith. Um, I'm sure the issues for you in your life have been different, but I'm sure for all of us, that's something that at some point we've gone through, where something about God, something about our church, something about our faith um, has created incredible anger and incredible frustration and incredible questions, and we've needed to attend to that in anger for a time so that we could move beyond it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Which brings us to response three. 
Um, have you forgotten the question? <laughs> so it's that, I'll remind you. What do you do when you learn something about a friend that doesn't seem to fit with the image that you have of them? Um, so the third response, which is what Ronnie talked about, is this idea of talking to our friend, radical though that may seem, actually talking to them. Um, and it is incredible how, how often when we read a provocative passage, it doesn't occur to us to, to pray about it. The response is, I guess, a kind of a shutting down of the relationship with God, and it's, that's understandable, but I guess the challenge is to not disconnect, but to try to, to stay connected to God in that, in that time of confusion and in that time of questioning and to actually pray about it. This is a, an, I love this picture of uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel. Um, I think perhaps one of the reasons why we fail to pray under these circumstances is because we don't think God can handle it. We don't think God can handle our anger, our confusion or our disappointment. Um, Yet the Psalms, the, the prayer book of the Bible, is full of prayers exactly like that. If you want to go just to the next one, Alex, yeah. here are just, just four quotes from the Psalms of these, these kinds of prayers where someone is disappointed with God, angry with God. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Awake, O oh Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. <laughs> it's incredible. These words directed to, to God. Rouse yourself. Wake up. What's wrong with you? Um, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Why have you rejected us forever, O oh God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? I think so often we, we want to be the, the kind of protectors of God, but God doesn't need us to protect, to, to protect him from our anger. He wants authenticity. If that's what you're feeling, that's what you need to to share with God. And if you go a little bit over the top, (laughs) why have you rejected us forever? That's okay. (laughs) God can handle it. It's the connection. It's the not turning away that, that God desires. Um next one so the the other thing as as we talked about as Alastair was kind of alluding to is part of our talking to God is I guess allowing God to talk to us in some ways directly but more often through through his word through the bible and through a cultural context as well Um, it is it is incredible the power of of context to transform our understanding of a story there was these um series of ads i don't know if if you remember them it was maybe 10 years ago i think they were insurance ads i can't remember but in these ads they they start with a close-up i can remember just one of them starts with a close-up of a woman sitting in her car in the driver's seat and um you can see past her to the driver's side window and a man approaches the car and wrenches open the door and drags her out um, an incredibly violent image and then instantly 
we cut to a wider shot of the same scene and we see that the back of her car is on fire. And so suddenly what looks like an assault becomes a daring rescue. This is the power of context, that it can, can suddenly, through giving a new perspective, it can suddenly and radically change our sense of a story. And so what I've asked, what, I've asked three people, Shane, Louise and Steve, to come up and just talk for two minutes about um, something from the culture, something from the Bible, something that gives context to this story that helps them to come to terms with it. I might ask Shane to come up first if he doesn't mind. <laughs> Lucky you. Uh, two minutes, right. It's, that's not my forte. Um, anthropologists would tell us that people have always sacrificed um, right throughout human history. For me, this story um, is part of a progression. I believe that the Bible actually moves and shifts ethically across time, which for some people is a very controversial opinion, and for other people, much, much less so. But I think the Bible is a grand narrative or a big story that moves somewhere. Uh, For me, the story of Abraham and Isaac um, is actually a restraint of sacrifice. The idea that um, in the surrounding cultures at the time, as far as we can discern looking backwards, that human sacrifice wasn't... um, viewed in the same light as it obviously would be today, but that it was actually quite common in the religions of the age. That um, God restrained Isaac. That, that, God, that our God would ask um, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac wouldn't have um, produced the same sense of out of nowhereness um, as it would today. And that the fact that God restrained Isaac and ended human, um, human sacrifice in the, um, the people of Israel is actually moving towards a tra- tra- trajectory away from sacrifice and away from the idea of scapegoating. And this idea comes from a guy, you can look him up, called um, René Girard. He's a French theologian and philosopher. But the broad idea is that people have always tried to avert violence or um, owning stuff by placing the blame on someone else. Um, Jews and gypsies and witches and all kinds of um, different people throughout history have been marginalised and borne violence to um, to absorb the violence from within the community that's um, that should probably own it. Uh, the the idea um, within the Bible is that is that um, God initially asks for sacrifices, but if you follow the trajectory, moves away from human sacrifice. Um, accepts animal sacrifice, moves away from animal sacrifice, his own son is sacrificed, um, and that is the end of all sacrifices. And my reading of it would be that God's participation in sacrifice isn't actually God's idea, but it's God's participation in a human story, that God is actually taking our idea of sacrifice, our idea of needing to scapegoat something, our idea of needing to place violence on something else for something of our own fault, that God actually participates in that story and steers it towards a more whole direction until we reach the place where suddenly it's revealed that sacrifice is actually no longer needed and perhaps never was to please God. Yeah.
that would be my reading anyway. The one, uh, the thing that stood out for me is uh, in the New Testament, it talks about that God, you know, if we actually obey God, and even though the situation is tough or difficult, he actually gives a way out. And I always look at the Abraham and Isaac story as that thing of, in obedience, God brought along a ram and there was a way out. And so for me, when I'm in those situations where even though it's difficult to do what I know is what is the right thing to do and what God's asking me to do, even though it feels, you know, like there isn't any way out, like this is really not going to work out well, I, I think from that story I gain this trust in a God that there is a way out, that there is going to be a ram in the thicket if I just obey and push through. So that's the one for me. I think for, for me, um, if we were just to take this scripture in isolation and disconnection from um, uh, the bigger story, and certainly if we don't view this uh, scripture uh, from the perspective of the New Testament and in particular uh, the life of Jesus, then we do end up with a very um, pagan concept of God, or we, we could feel that uh, this is quite pagan. Um, but the story of, of, uh, of this event, um, I frame within the context of Hebrews chapter 11 and verses 17 through to 19. It says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And this is the key verse. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. And so when I read that story, I, I don't read it in isolation from the New Testament, and particularly this, this scripture here in Hebrews 11, because what I see is um, we look back to the resurrection of the dead. Abraham looked forward to the resurrection of the dead. And the other thing that we've been saying about uh, Abraham's uh, engagement with God is that it must be understood within the context of blood covenant. If you read this, the life of Abraham outside of blood covenant, this story makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And the essence of blood covenant is, is that the relationship between God and Abraham is a one of partnership, a one of unity, that everything that God has belongs to Abraham and everything that Abraham has belongs to God. And within a blood covenant culture, which was part of the context of the day, a very real part of life uh, within um, Middle Eastern culture, was that Part of the covenants, blood covenant ceremony that people went through was the exchange of the firstborn son. And what would happen is that um, when two people entered into covenant to show and um, declare their commitment to that relationship, they would actually give uh, their firstborn son to one another in exchange to say, I am so absolutely secure and confident and I trust you with that which is most dear and precious to me. And so when God comes and requests of Abraham, uh, his son, it's got to be seen in the light of the exchange of the firstborn sons. And I believe that what Abraham did in surrendering his son 
Uh, one, he was looking forward, to, he believed in a God of resurrection, but he did so, what he did was he provided a platform for God to surrender and give up his son in redemption for humanity. So that's how I frame the story. Thanks, guys. We're in the home stretch. Um, I just wanted to share one more bit of context. One thing, at the risk of suggesting that I have a crush on Rabbi Morgan, maybe I do, but um, I wanted to quote him again. He taught last, last week... Um, that the other context that we can bring to difficult passages is the context of our own lives and our own story. Um, so I want to tell you briefly a, a, a part of my story which, which helps me to come to terms with this one. Um, I once read a book suggesting that we're all driven by a desire for one of three things, money, sex and power. Um, but for me, growing up, it was always and only sex. Um, not that I had any, but it was what drove me. But being a good Christian boy, I followed the script, uh, tried to save myself for marriage and pretty much succeeded. And uh, I got married for the first time when I was 21. Uh, And I could not wait for the satisfying sex life that I deserved as a reward for my patience and my abstinence. Uh, Unfortunately, what I got was an unsatisfying sex life undermined by a whole range of things, but... Uh, chiefly, it was my wife's depression um, and the, the effect on her libido. libido. Um, but I prayed and I had faith that, that one day her depression would lift, uh, one day our, our sexual problems would be resolved. Um, anyway, about six or so years into our marriage, um, her depression did finally start to lift and I began to feel like my prayers were being answered. Um, That was until the day she told me that she'd been having an affair for the previous three months or so and then moved out. Um, I'm not sure who I felt more betrayed by, whether it was her or God. Um, But I kept going, uh, seeking reconciliation, trying to get her to go to counselling with me, doing all of those things, uh, until about six months later when I, I just couldn't go on. I couldn't take anymore the, the way that she was treating me um, and I decided that I needed to get away from her get away from Australia and uh, I flew then to I flew to San Francisco I was on my way to Vancouver to a to do a summer school at at a bible college and um, I stayed for a night or two in a downtown hostel in in San Francisco and I, it was in an eight-bed dorm and on the first first night I went to bed early because I, I literally didn't know what else to do I was depressed, I was excruciatingly lonely, facing the daunting prospect of six months away from everyone that I loved and the support that I had, Um, and above all, filled filled with with rage, with uh, jealousy and and, um, and envy. Uh, I was 27, and all I'd ever wanted to do was was to, to be able to have the relationship and to have a healthy, satisfying sex life, and it seemed like at every turn that had been blocked. And I'd done everything I was supposed to do, and yet God had not come through for me. That was my feeling. And I was so angry with God. I remember lying there with tears in my eyes, pleading with God, saying, no more. I can't take any more. 
If you want me to keep following, following you, holding on to these sexual ethics that have given me nothing but pain and frustration, then you've got to cut me some slack. And then, right in the middle of my desperate prayer, one of my roommates came into the darkened room with a girl he'd just met and proceeded to have loud sex with her on the floor about two feet from where I was lying. My faith barely survived that experience. Um, But it did. It did. And for me, I wonder if this is another aspect of this story. Like the story of Job, that the life of faith, the life of hope, the life of love is is the only life, the only true life. (laughs) But we have to be prepared for the fact, we have to be prepared for the possibility that there will be times when faith, hope and love are all that we have, when everything else is stripped away, everything is taken away, even, even a child, an only child, even a child that we love. Because for me, Jesus, Jesus didn't give up his life so that I might not have to give up anything. Jesus didn't suffer pain so that I might be spared any suffering. Not in this life. Last week we were told that the Bible is not sweet. It is not solemn. But it is real. And this... This is the reality of life. Everything can be taken away. You, look, you read the story of Job. Everything, he, he did nothing wrong, and yet everything was taken away from him. This too, I think, is the message of the book of Revelation. If you read that, you see a, a church under persecution, horrific persecution. And John says, persevere. Persevere for, for the hope of the new Jerusalem, for the hope of of a life where every tear will be wiped away. But you can't expect that to be now. There will be times, there will be times when things will be expected of you that you don't think that you can bear. And the Bible is preparing us for that possibility because the Bible, God through his word, wants us to hold on, even under those circumstances. You might still, even with what Shane and Louise and Steve and I have said, you might still have difficulty with this story. I mean, we talked before about the absence of Sarah. That, to me, is is really troubling in this story. And even with what Steve says about blood covenant, the you know the effect on Isaac of this symbolic experience the potentially traumatic effect on him these things are still there even with this context Um, but I I guess that's where we we get just very very briefly to the last thing and that is um, Alex that's the last one that sometimes in life we don't find a neat resolution and we have to live with attention we talked about this at the beginning and we have to remind ourselves, I guess, at times of what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that, 
that we just see, we don't see clearly now. And there will be things that never, never before death at least, make sense to us. There'll be questions that remain for us until death, and that's okay. I don't believe that orthodoxy is having all the answers about difficult passages. I think orthodoxy is not turning away from those passages, even if we have no answers. Journeying with them in the hope that one day we will have a big enough sense of God to make sense of it, but knowing that that might not happen this side of death, and that's okay. I'll just leave you with one, one last thing. I find this very comforting, this story in John 6, where, where Jesus is telling his followers that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood if they are to have eternal life. It's, it's, it would, would have been an amazingly difficult thing to hear really provocative, really confusing for a lot of people. And, and many turned away from Jesus at that point. It was too hard. And Jesus said to his disciples, well, what about you? Are you going to leave as well? And Peter, God bless him, I love Peter. <laughs> he says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. I don't understand. I don't pretend to understand what you just said. I may never understand it, but where am I going to go? That, that was where I ended up in my bunk bed in San Francisco, going, I, I, I want to turn away from you, but where would I go? And, and uh, perhaps that's what Abraham was saying to himself on those three days walking to that mountain. I'm not sure what's going on here, but you have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? I have to go on because there's nowhere else to go. Let's pray. Loving God, I thank you that you are so big so much bigger than any of us can even begin to comprehend. That we can take hold of you, we can apprehend you, but we can never comprehend you. We can never contain you in the smallness of our own mind. Forgive us for the moments of pride where we think that we can. But I thank you that you reach out to us in love through your son. And I thank you that you are real with us in your word, that you don't pretend that everything's going to be easy. You don't pretend that we won't have times of rage and confusion. But that you give us your son to give us comfort, to give us hope, and to show us love so that we might go on. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Just one last thing. 
I watched this movie last night, The Tree of Life. It says everything that I just said, but much more eloquently, so I would recommend having a look at it. It's by Terence Malick, who's a, a beautiful um, Catholic filmmaker. I certainly think you have incredibly eloquent, uh, Rod, and, and that was outstanding. Let's thank Rod this morning. Beautiful. I love coming to church because I'm never quite sure what's going to happen. Uh, that was uh, very refreshing and uh, just beautiful. Thank you, Rod. I really appreciate that. Uh, we're going to have lunch together now, and uh, Michael, come and... Uh, uh, close with benediction. Let's all stand. And um, the word benedic- benediction means, I guess, to uh, speak a blessing over. Um, and these are not just idle words, but I want us to open up our hearts and allow these words to sit with us and sit upon us as we, um, as we sort of formally close our time together this morning. Thanks, Michael. May the strength of God sustain us. May the power of God preserve us. May the God, sorry, may the hands of God protect us. May the way of God direct us. May the love of God go with us today and forever. Everybody said, Amen.